Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty reporting from Walmart, Colorado. And I've got my partner up in Chicago, Larry Mishkin. How you doing, Larry? Jim, I'm doing just great. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, be able to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, two of our favorite things to talk about. Um, things are going well here in Chicago. Uh, we're starting to uh, dip out of the nice, warm, sunny weather and into the more overcast, cold weather. Uh, but I guess that we're within spitting distance of Thanksgiving, so that seems a little bit appropriate by this time, unfortunately. Uh, and we're ready to do that. Um, you know, uh, Jim, we're really lucky today because uh, we've now uh, had our show on enough that we're uh, finally at a point where, you know, enough time has gone by. We can bring back prior guests that we've had, um, especially those guests who we found to be really entertaining uh, and informative and uh, like-minded as you and I are. And uh, one of those is our good friend, Rob Hunt, who's calling in today uh, from right outside San Diego. Uh, Rob, how you doing? I'm great. And I, I didn't realize until just now that I'm your first repeat guest. So uh, I'm absolutely honored that I get the uh, the dubious distinction. Absolutely. No, we're, we're, we're happy to have you come back. And uh, we, we loved our talk last time. And uh, even just in the five minutes of warm up here, we quickly discovered that uh, we could create enough content to talk all day. So before I do this, why don't we dive back into Rob and give you 30 seconds to update us and our listeners on where you're at and what you're doing. Sure. I'm uh, back in Carlsbad, California, after spending a couple of months in the Northeast uh, with my children in school on a tiny little island where we're COVID-free and safe, uh, but we've now made our way back to the West Coast and um, kind of back into to isolation with lots of time to listen to music and, and articulate our thoughts on paper as to what's happening in the cannabis industry. I love that. That works out very well. Rob, in uh, uh, one of his former lives, was a... Uh, uh, worked with a, uh, a VC group, and uh, they uh, looked at a number of different marijuana uh, investment opportunities. And for a while, Rob, I remember you told us that you had uh, had some communications with the uh, Garcia family and Trixie and some of them uh, in early conversations to roll out a uh, some Jerry-branded cannabis products. And now we actually have them. They've, they've, they've hit the market recently. Have you had a chance to see them? I have. Yeah, they look terrific. And I'm super excited for the family. And I'm super excited for Josh Anderson and the whole holistic team to have made this a, a reality and get those products off the ground. And I'm very much looking forward to uh, to, to seeing what else they drop. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, typical for what you would expect for Jerry, you know, I saw in the uh, um, I don't know where I saw it uh, on, on one of the Web pages I was on. I mean, the the packaging is, you know, artistic and everything. It's, you know, it's really kind of uh, like a, a, a full visual experience, full whatever. And have you had a chance to try it yet? I have not. No, uh, I've seen probably what you've seen, which is all the packaging, all the uh, all the different looks and feels to, to what they're doing. But no, I've not yet uh, come across it in person. Okay, and so that makes him the second, right? Mickey already has his line out. Hmm. And so now we've got Mickey and Jerry. Any of the other guys that you know of thinking or contemplating? Not that I know of. Um, you know, the, the understanding that I had is, you know, the the Grateful Dead was very excited to do something, but they hadn't come to uh, terms on figuring out who they wanted to launch a Grateful Dead product line with. And so Mickey oh. kind of jumped the gun and decided that I'm going to put something out uh, independently. And he did his, uh, his short joints line. Um, but the Garcia family, as, as you know, is independent of the Grateful Dead, despite the fact that, you know, Trixie still sits on the board of the band. And, you know, she's essentially the sixth band member for decision making purposes. But, 
but you know the Garcia estate did something completely different than you know what the Grateful Dead is doing. It's two completely different management teams and two completely completely different legal teams and, and everything else. So uh, the expectation is that if there is anything else coming out from the dead, it'll be the Grateful Dead as a group together um, and, and not another individual band member. Okay. Okay. Yeah, my understanding is, um, Bob, we left the world of using marijuana many decades ago. That I don't know. And I, and I have to tell you, I don't know how much you know about that, Rob, but that was always one of our, you know, favorite discussions before, after a show, sitting at home, listening to whatever we were listening to. Who in the band gets high and how often do they get high and do they get high on stage? And when Jerry's sitting there smoking in between songs, what is he really smoking? And, you know, and, and part of it, I think, was always just, you know, kind of the fun of imagining and not really knowing one way or the other. And, 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 and for me, the almost bigger question is, is, you know, how many of them were or even to this day still dosing when they go out and play? Um, you know, and, and I've heard all sorts of rumors about that, but nothing that I would, uh, you know, uh, put any stock in necessarily other than, again, just excited deadheads, you know, liking to repeat whatever they think they heard. Yeah, absolutely. And to my knowledge, what Jerry was smoking on stage was always Paul Mall on filters. So uh, <laughs> I don't think it was really much more than that. And, you know, there's times he, Obviously, see him light up and put it on his uh, speaker stack or his monitor stack in between right. uh, in between songs. Take a drag or two, and then go back and, and start you know playing the next tune. And it's funny, so you know that it, that it is tobacco, and and um, which is fine. You know, I, we all, of course, were imagining he was getting stoned. But um, you may or I don't know if I've ever told you the story, Rob. I, I know that I've, I've I've shared the story with our listeners, and I'll, I'm just mentioning it here really quickly. Um, in the early 1970s, my father was an orthopedic surgeon. We went to Las Vegas for a conference and I got to see Elvis Presley and, um, I saw him at the uh, Hilton ballroom and it was, you know, it was tremendous. But one of the things that I remembered all night was that he kept having drinks in between the songs. And I thought, wow, this is Elvis, man. He's up there and he's having, and later on, of course, we found out that it was, you know, non-alcoholic drinks when he, whatever he was drinking was fruit juice or whatever kind of, you know, and it was almost like it, it, it felt a lot better when I thought he was really drinking, just like, you know, when I always imagined Jerry was sitting there smoking a joint before he turned around and played a hot morning dew, but maybe it was just taking a drag off the cigarette. Yeah. Funny you bring up Elvis. Cause for me, almost everything I know about Elvis is because of the Garcia band. You know, whether it's uh, That's All Right, Mama, or uh, or uh, uh, Don't Let Go. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of songs that, you know, even Elvis didn't actually write but covered that, you know, I only learned about because the Garcia Band covered those songs as well. Well, in one of, for at least in one of the iterations of the Garcia Band, Ron Tut was the drummer, and he had been, yeah. he had been Elvis's drummer. Hmm. Yeah. They, they actually brought him over. And, yeah, well, that, I mean, for me. And Don I, was a backup I, singer. Right, and Don was the backup singer. Um you raise an interesting point because I, I've sat down, you know, my kids are just getting to an age where they've, they've, they like the dead, but they, they really have taken a, a real fascination in, you know, early, you know, classic rock and roll. And as I go back through my collection with them of, of, of non-dead stuff, I'm always amazed at how many bands I get to. And I'm like, well, I got here cause the dead covered them. So I started listening to them yeah. Yeah. and I, you know, I mean, there's so much music and, and even bands that I knew like the Beatles, they took me to songs of the Beatles that I had never heard before or never really paid attention to. And, you know, tomorrow never knows is a great tune and I'm sure I listened to it, but I never really listened to it until they did it. Yeah. I mean, that's a great segue to even talking about the new Dave's picks um, coming out. And when you think about just, you know, what the first set of that first night looks like, you know, the first song is uh, a Wilson Pickett tune in the midnight hour, you know, CC Ryder being kind of traditional. Um, uh, let's see, 
Desolation Road being a Dylan tune and Promised Land being a Chuck Berry song. You know, it's the, the dead opened up so many doors into different bands or different music. I would have never known who Wilson Pickett was, but for the Midnight Hour. Right, exactly. It's a great Desolation Row. Uh, Bob gets all the lyrics, all 15 verses, gets them all right. And then forgets the lyrics to truck it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, was the old joke is how does Bob get Desolation Row completely correct and still messes up trucking? <laughs> right. It, right. It, it, I was always – and I, because it wasn't just Desolation Row. He was doing that, and he was doing Memphis Blues again. Yeah, exactly. And he was doing Green Jane approximately, and he was yeah. interchanging them all on a regular basis, and he used to nail them all night after night. In Memphis Blues, is a, there's a lot of lyrics in that song. A lot of lyrics. Yeah, that's true. It just it just kind of goes on and on. And and that was back in the day before they had, you know, the convenience they all have now of the little video screen that they throw up in front of them so they can, you know, turn to any song on the fly and play it, of course. But uh, that's true. I mean, just all the different, you know, avenues it took me into. And then, um, you know, and then you just slide off into other side areas off of that. And, you know, before you know it, you've covered a big chunk of, you know, the rock and roll genre. Yeah, yep. absolutely. I mean, even the second set from that same night, I'm looking at it right now, had, uh, you know, a, a Young Rascals tune in Good Lovin', uh, another uh, uh, Dylan tune with Mighty Quinn, uh, another Chuck Berry tune with Round and Round. Yep. You know, that's uh, I Know Your Rider being a you know, great true American traditional song. So there's just a handful of things that were, you know, in, in any given night, probably half the songs you were listening to were cover songs, you know, if the dead were the ones that made it famous. Right. So, it's, uh, well, but you know, you know, we joke about all the cowboy songs, right? Big River and Me and My Uncle and uh, any of those tunes, which were all, you know, traditional Western tunes. Um, and, you know, and they took it and they, and I'll tell you the one that I, I loved and, and they only played it for a very short period of time was Sing Me Back Home, which oh, they did yeah. in the early 1970s, a Merle Haggard tune. And then they, they just kind of dropped it for some reason. But that's a beautiful what? tune and Jerry would nail it. Oh yeah, what a what a, a heartstring evoking you know tune that 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 is of uh, of you know the last request of, a, of an inmate going to be uh, put to death. Right. So, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and allegedly a true story from when Merle actually spent time in prison. That was what he was asked by one of the guys who was walking down death row. Oh, real that I hadn't heard. That's very interesting. I heard that. Yeah. Okay. Mama tried another uh, Merle Haggard song. Right. Yeah. You know, but I just loved all that, you know, because, you know, here in the midst of it and, and these were, you know, if you ask your you know, typical deadhead who may not know any better, you know, oh, yeah, those are all Grateful Dead tunes. And that's because the dead have taken them and they've made them right. their own and they've incorporated them into their set, you know, so much that we, we all just take it for granted that it is their music. And, you know, my, my all time favorite statistic about the Grateful Dead is that the number one most played song was me and my uncle hmm. by a lot. <laughs> by like a hundred shows almost. And yeah. it just always amazed me, you know, I mean, whatever me and my uncle, it's a good tune. It's a snappy, it moves along. But for Bobby, it was obviously like a great filler and he just went to it a lot. Yeah, it was also the shortest song clocking right. in on average about two minutes and one second. Right. So exactly. you know, it, was, it was a great thing. that could pop into any set just to, you know, when you're doing the, uh, the combo of two cowboy tunes in a row, you know, whether it was that in Mama Trot or that in Big River or that in um, El Paso. Yeah, you could always, you know, put it together really fast. It's just a filler song. No doubt about it. Desolation Row. Uh, I always liked it when the Grateful Dead did Bob Dylan songs because, number one, you can understand the lyrics. Bob always did a great job with the lyrics. Mm -hmm. uh, God, how many characters from American folklore are mentioned in Desolation Row? <laughs> Einstein and God, the, list, the list goes on. But Cinderella. Cinderella, yeah. yeah. 
Well, that's why I feel like Ramble on Rose also. Ramble on Rose, you know, all sorts of, uh, of characters from, from American folklore. Absolutely. Yep. And U.S. Blues. And I mean, you know, they 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 touched on a lot of this stuff over time. It's, uh, you know, it's fun. You can really put together a uh, an interesting list of characters that the Grateful Dead sing about. Yep. And um, before we move on from Dave's picks from 1987, um, that's March of 87, right? Hartford, Connecticut. Yep. Um, one of the best uh, Tennessee Jets I think I've ever heard with a terrific, terrific jam to end it. You know, look, I have to tell you, 87, um, in my opinion, was a great time for them, right? Jerry was coming back from his first diabetic coma, um, you know, and he was at least for a while going through a period of, you know, healthy living and uh, everything else. And I think they had a lot of energy at that time. I think there was a lot of, you know, uh, invigoration. Jerry was back. The band was rolling along. Um, and, you know, a lot of those tunes from that time are, 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 are classic. And that's why I'm I'm very excited to see that, you know, Dave has finally dipped into the 80s. And, you know, the thing about this that always cracks me up about Dave, of course, is that Dave saw his first show in like 89 or 90. He's Canadian. And I've, I've listened to him talk about it. He didn't even start seeing them until 89 or 90. Um, you know, and he has this total, you know, infatuation with the 70s, which, I, again, I love the 70s, but they did a lot of great work in the 80s. And even some of the early 90s, there's there's good moments along the way. Well, and, and the funny part is, is that, you know, the, what they released for this um, two disc set or four disc set is as quintessential 87 as it comes. You know, right. if you think about a set list that would typify 87 yep. when you've got, you know, a brother Esau and push comes to shove yep. um, and uh, Alabama getaway. Uh, I mean, these are at West L.A. fadeaway. These are all songs that you expect to pop up into a, an 87 set list. Exactly. So, you know, if you're going to pull one that doesn't, you know, kind of represent like a 70s set list in the 80s. Right. This is 87 as it comes. Yep. No, I would agree. And that's true. Is that you got to be careful, you know, because and they've released a lot of that. They released uh, a while back that, you know, the playing as the formerly the Warlocks from uh, Hampton, Virginia in 1989. And it was a great show, but it, it, it almost sounded like, you know, a 70s show because of the they had a lot of early stuff and a lot of yeah, you know, Dark Star and an Addicts. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So yes, you know, they, they mix all that up and have some fun with it. I'm enjoying um, it very much. Well, we can talk about this all day and maybe we still will, but there's uh, a couple of things I really wanted to touch on uh, with you, Rob, while we have you. Um, first of all, uh, we've been talking just a minute ago about the Jerry brand, but uh, right before we went on, you were mentioning and, and Jim was echoing uh, the, uh, the new brand that uh, Carlos Santana has come out with. And uh, apparently he did a big presentation yesterday. Is that something you can tell us about? Yeah, well, I spoke at a conference yesterday that's um, part of the NCIA conference. So it's the, the Cannabis conference is the part that, you know, kind of kicks it off. So I spoke on a panel on that. So I was able to, to get access to, you know, a lot of the other uh, speakers. And I'm guessing Jim might, might have been a speaker at that thing as well. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was nice to see they had two keynotes. Andrew Yang was one that's happening today. And the other one was Carlos, which happened yesterday. But it was really Carlos's take on just kind of, you know, how he sees the world and, and how he views, uh, you know, his role in it. And, you know, now that Carlos has got a, a canvas brand out as well, which I think we all kind of expected at some point we might see. But it was, it was good to see a, um, uh, an icon that, you know, has really been important to the canvas culture uh, now come back full circle and actually, you know, take a role as a, uh, as a keynote speaker at a conference. Yes, I really enjoyed his talk yesterday. Uh, our pre-recorded presentation will be tomorrow on some tax and accounting issues with uh, Nick Richards and Rachel Gillette of Greenspoon Martyr. And um, 
So it's a cyber event, of course. But back to Carlos. Yeah, he really, I thought he gave a great talk, um, really talking about his spiritual side and um, how people trust him. And when he goes into to business with people, which he's done many times, uh, I guess, with sunglasses and shoes and clothing. Um, his uh, comment that I took away from his talk yesterday was trust makes thrust. That uh, if you trust somebody, you can get a lot of thrust and get some, a lot of things done. So I really like that saying. Um, but uh, and what was he was wearing a uh, listen to Miles Davis T-shirt. It was kind of funny. Carlos always did that kind of stuff. I, one of his albums, he was I remember on the uh, on the fo- the picture on the inside on the fold, he was wearing a St. Louis Blues hockey jersey, which always struck me as odd. But you know, he gets into that kind of stuff, so it all's fine with me. Well, I think any, anyone that's a Grateful Dead fan, you know, we have to respect Carlos just by the fact that, you know, Bill Graham's two favorite guys to put on stage in the late 60s of the Fillmore were the Grateful Dead and Carlos Santana. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, those are the two people that really blew him away. And if anyone hasn't gotten a chance to see Jerry and Carlos play together, you know, Google it. There's a couple of times they've played some tunes that, you know, the, the trading of licks are just unreal between the two of them. And of course, now you can do that while enjoying one of Carlos's products and get the whole uh, Santana experience. Yeah. Or, or you put a vape cart of Garcia's and a vape cart of uh, of Santana's into a double barrel and uh, you know mix it even, up. Even better, <laughs> even better. So here, that that was the other question about this I wanted to ask you, Rob, and see if you had any insight on it. We we've now got a, a Mickey Hart brand. We got a Jerry brand. Uh, is it just a matter of time you think before we see a Billy brand or a Bobby brand, or uh, are we done with the individuals there? Uh, I think I think more likely than not we're done with the individuals, and I think very likely the next one is you know whoever comes together to to put out a Grateful Dead brand, and I think it's only a question of time. Okay, I mean it would it would seem inevitable, wouldn't it? That you know I mean as much fun as it is to have a Jerry brand or a Mickey brand, you know to to have a pre-roll joint, you know like with a a, a skull and roses on it would be pretty cool. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Okay. Okay. Well, that's the beauty of this industry is that there's a lot of celebrities out there who like to get stoned and, you know, money is money. So if they can find a good opportunity to do it, you know, you can have all sorts of good stuff. The question remains, I mean, how much utility though, is there in in the celebrity brand? You know, you look at, you know, probably the arguably most successful celebrity brand out there right now is cookies, you know, through burner and uh, you know, burner's not nearly as big a, a name in, in the music industry, but you know, for street cred around Los Angeles, you know, he certainly has it, and he certainly has dedicated his life to the cannabis industry as far as you know, singing about cannabis, you know, talking about cannabis. So you know, do a lot of the um, the more nostalgic people that you know were huge fans of their music are they as relevant to the people that are using cannabis today, or is just a really great top notch brand um, that's not celebrity endorsed? Uh, even more important for the long term. And, and I would argue that, you know, it's great to see people's names uh, attached to these things and they're a great way to, to, you know, have some advertising and marketing when that's not really available in the canvas industry. But is it, you know, really what drives sales? And I'm, I'm still not convinced that it is, though I do love to see the artists that have kind of paved the way for the industry uh, get their recognition and, and be able to make a little bit of money on the back end. Well, that I absolutely agree with, but I think that then we have to start drawing distinctions between some of those people. And this is going to get me in trouble for saying this in Chicago, but uh, when one of the recent greenhouse uh, uh, adult use dispensaries opened here, uh, it was all centered around the blues brothers because they were going to be the only dispensary in Illinois carrying the blues brothers brand. uh, And they had Jim Belushi come out in the original blues brothers mobile and, you know, I mean, whatever, I guess if you're a nostalgia buff for that kind of thing, it was OK. But that doesn't really scream cannabis to me. No. Well, no. 
the big point I would make on all of this celebrity branding is you still can't cross state lines. So right. the Willie Nelson you buy in Colorado is not going to be the same exact Willie Nelson you get in California because it's going to be grown locally. Yeah. The strains are not yeah. as consistent. And the example I always use, and people have heard me say it on the show, is Marlboro cigarettes. You, know, you get them anywhere in the world. They're pretty much all the same, but uh, not so with cannabis. But, but to that point, Jim, I think it depends on which brand. And there's some brands that just you know slap their name on a box and say that the, the, um, the packaging is consistent, but nothing else is. You know, I, I helped get the Willys brand off the ground, and we were the, the first dollars into that brand um, when, we, when we funded it back in 2015. And I'll say that that team has done a really nice job of curating um, very small boutique growers that adhere to a very specific ethos that they have. Uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that they're you know, as inconsistent as others. Your, your point's well taken. that They can't, can't cross state lines, but they can certainly say, let's start with the same genetics and let's start with the same um, you know, uh, growing methodology to make sure that we're doing as best as we possibly can to keep you know, the relative humidity and the temp and everything else the same in the room so we can say this is as consistent as we can possibly be without crossing state lines. And I've given the Willys team a, a tremendous amount of credit for you know, the way that they've gone after the, the consistency part of this. Right, right. Larry and I have talked about that. We call it, <clears throat> when a new state comes online, the immaculate conception. So <laughs> you can um, cross state lines with mature flower. Many, many clones and many, many seeds will get an industry started where there is there was no industry before. Yeah, you know, I've always used the same term, Jim, and it is only recently that I realized that I was always completely wrong about what the Immaculate Conception meant. I never realized that that was, you know, not not Mary conceiving Jesus. It was Mary's being born without original sin. So the whole idea of, you know, the Immaculate Conception for cannabis, it, it truly isn't even a, a proper analogy, although that's what we've all been saying for years. Well, I'm, I'm going to stay out of the religious side of it, but I will I will take your word for it, Rob, because if anybody would know you. I, I never knew it, Larry. Like, I, I always I always assumed that everyone you know thought the same thing. But you know, I never realized it until I watched someone point it out. It was Chris Cuomo pointing it out to uh, to Matt Gates in an interview. And I was like, wait, that can't be right. And then I looked it up. I was like, my goodness, like Cuomo was spot on on, on calling him out for uh, for mischaracterizing the Immaculate Conception. Unbelievable. OK, well, see, we learn something new every day on this show. So that's even better. Hey, that's what I'm here for. One of the things I really want to talk to you about right now. Um, and it's it's a topic that's out there. It's a huge, huge topic in the cannabis space. Um, people all know about it, but nobody understands it. And hopefully you can help shed some light on that is this uh, lovely set of interim rules that the DEA just slapped on us not too long ago. Um, you know, I will say just as a quick disclaimer that there's already a uh, multi-party lawsuit that's been filed against it. The Hoban Law Group is one of a number of firms that are representing uh, the, the, uh, the, the people who are challenging the rule. But uh, having said that, I would still uh, like to get your input on this in terms of what you can tell us about it and what your involvement has been with it. Sure. Uh, first of all, it's an amazing, um, amazingly complex question. So for those of the, you know, are listening that don't you know, sort of know what we're talking about, on August 21st, the DEA came out with what they call an IFR or an interim final rule that pertained to their interpretation of specific um, regulatory pieces. Um, and a couple of the ones they went after were with relation to um, what's defined as marijuana oil. You know, there was a new portion of the, the Controlled Substances Act that was added in 
that said, you know, anything that's um, a, a marijuana oil uh, has a new um, coating in the CSA. So um, the 2018 Farm Bill, as everyone knows, legalized hemp, officially legalized hemp and took hemp out of the Controlled Substances Act altogether. And all of its cannabinoids. Yeah, and, and, and everything that's contained within it, derivatives, salts, isomers, everything. So in, in the process, they had to amend the definition of marijuana in the Controlled Substances Act to have a, um, a carve out that said marijuana is defined as, and they gave the full definition. They said, with the exception of anything that's been you know, proven to be hemp, and then hemp has its own definition through the 2018 Farm Bill. So at that point, you know, that was the first bright line distinction that we had between saying, you know, cannabis that is above 0.03% THC is still technically marijuana. And cannabis that's below 0.03% THC by dry weight is now hemp. So everyone you know, accepted that as definitionally accurate. Um, still, the, anything that was hemp had to be put through the, uh, the USDA initially, and then the USDA would work in conjunction with the state uh, departments of agriculture to make sure that anything that came down as hemp was properly licensed through the state, and the states had programs in place to, to guarantee that you know, the U.S. government was satisfied with you know, how they're handling it. And that went along for the last couple of years. And suddenly out of nowhere, the DEA drops this IFR in August that said, OK, that's great. But anything that's derived from hemp, if it pops above 0.03%, uh, which in the industry we refer to as popping hot, uh, would then be recategorized as, as marijuana oil. Well, OK, that, that sounds relatively simple. But the problem is it's impossible to extract hemp, like any hemp that on the first pass of extraction doesn't pop hot. And the thing is, that that's what we call, you know, work in progress hemp oil or hemp extract or WIPI is kind of the, uh, the uh, acronym or everyone just calls crude. Right. So when you talk about, you know, crude, crude has no market except B2B. There, there is no B2C consumer market for crude oil from hemp. And ultimately, that hemp oil gets you know, refined again uh, into an isolate or a distillate and then ultimately gets added to products that when they actually enter interstate commerce or commerce in general, the final product is well below the 0.03% THC threshold. So anyone that's been you know, creating a, a CBD product, and I mean anyone, is at, at some point having to start with that first pass extraction, which means that everything that follows from that would be you know, almost like fruit of the poisonous tree. It's uh, you know, technically illegal because what you started off with as a, as a base material is an illegal material. So the entire industry said, well, wait a second, there's no way for us to put out a CBD product unless you actually go through this process of extraction. And that first pass extraction to crude is certainly going to pop hot. And most of the states said, you know, look, if you look at our state regulations, we've even put an allowance in there saying, you know, as long as you're not above a certain threshold, we're going to allow for that to be higher than the USDA standard or the FDA standard, as long as the ultimate product that's being sold is not. But the DEA said, oh, no, no, what we've done is, you know, we're, we're not changing any rules. What we've done is just, you know, simply interpreted the law as written. And, uh, you know, this, this is no more than us just um, acting on, on the laws written. Well, if you look at it, what they've done is, is it's, it's dicta. It's not, um, it's not the laws written. The laws written was very specific, and Congress has been very specific in saying, no, once it's been deemed hemp, then you're removed, completely carved out from marijuana. You can't then take it and say, now you're being moved back into marijuana. Right. And that's what the DEA is trying to do. So the likelihood of enforcement is really low. But at the same time, if, if you're an investor in the industry and you're asking a, your hemp you know, extractor to make reps and warranties to say you're following the letter of the law and you're following the farm bill and you haven't done anything that's technically illegal, it would be near impossible to make that rep and warranty as long as this DEA, DEA IFR is hanging over your head. 
So everyone's looking for clarity on this. The reason I got involved in it was, you know, I was asked to be involved in the court case as an expert witness on kind of what the process of extraction is and how it works. And the, the more I dug into it, the more exciting and more you know, interesting this um, this question became. So, you know, the, the take that I have on it, and I think the one that's ultimately going to hold the day, is that in 2016, after the 2014 Farm Bill came out, which did not remove hemp from the CSA, the DEA was asked, you know, hey, how come you're still treating, you know, hemp as a, an illegal product? And they said, well, until Congress, you know, really makes a uh, an overt action to remove it from the CSA, we have to continue to, to treat hemp as marijuana. And so we're not going to change, you know, the way we handle hemp until the, the Congress, you know, makes a step of saying we've removed it from the CSA. We are powerless to do anything more than what Congress allows us. And they're saying that to make it less restrictive. Well, here we are in 2020 where they're now trying to make it more restrictive. And Congress has spoken and Congress has made their intent clear. And now there's even congressmen and congresswomen that signed on saying, DEA, you're, you're misinterpreting what we did. You guys are forgetting that we truly did make everything related to hemp legal. And every extract that follows, if you look at the language, is legal as well. So you know, while I don't think that when they wrote that rule, they're ever expecting that extraction was going to allow for you know someone to extract fields of hemp and turn it into 100% pure THC isolate, which you theoretically can, but that's not what's happening. What's what's happening is, you know, um, people taking hemp, extracting it, removing the THC through a, a remediation process, and then putting the CBD into products that go into interstate commerce. And I think the DEA has got a real tough road ahead of them. And your firm, Larry, I think is doing a terrific job joining with Vicente Cedarberg and a couple others to, to challenge this ruling on behalf of the American um, hemp industry as well as a, a couple of select clients. So really, really interesting question. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're very proud. Patrick Goggin and uh, uh, a few of the other guys, uh, uh, Garrett Graff at the Hoban firm, have been uh, working very hard on that along with uh, along with Bob. One issue about this, though, because it, it, it's a pretty – besides the fact that I love – anything that calls itself an interim final rule, which kind of sounds like military intelligence. Yeah, nice. um, yeah. The other side of this that I'm a little bit concerned about as well is we're seeing a lot of uh, new products coming onto the market. Uh, THCA, Delta-8, um, CBG, yeah. uh, a lot of other things that are, in fact, cannabinoids of hemp and therefore, by definition, under the 2018 Farm Bill, all legal. But of course, uh, what we're all seeing now is that something uh, like Delta-8 may have THC in it. It's not Delta-9 THC. So if you have Delta-8, while it is inert in its that state, if you light it, my understanding on this is all very basic, when you light it and, you, uh, and, and it, it burns, it releases a certain amount of psychoactive substance. Um, and so people have picked up on this and it's becoming very, very popular, but of course, slowly but surely, uh, the DEA and the government is catching on to it as well. And one of the things that the Hoban firm that we've been concerned about with this issue is how do we kind of balance this? Because on the one hand, in response to the, uh, the issue of the, of the crude oil, what we're really saying is, Hey, look, this is all going to be below 0.3%. This is not psychoactive. This will not have a psychoactive effect on people. Therefore you shouldn't be, be considering it as something as such. Whereas with Delta-8, we can't really make that argument because if somebody buys Delta-8 and they and they do uh, uh, um, combust it and smoke it, they are in fact getting a psychoactive effect, That that meaning that there is then a THC effect that's produced that's equivalent to something greater than 0.3%. And so you kind of have two different issues tugging at one another here. 
And the question is, is that is that reality potentially damaging to getting people to come on board with the idea that we shouldn't be worrying about crude oil right now because the final product's going to be at a lower level? Yeah, look, there's a super simple fix to all this that the DEA obviously doesn't want to you know take a look at. But ultimately, if you're, you know, to say what's going to happen, if, if Congress realizes that, you know, extraction is happening that allows for D8 and allows even for D9 to be extracted out of hemp, you know, ultimately that is an issue. And I don't think the intent of Congress ever was to legalize a backdoor to, to get people high through hemp extraction. But the simple way to handle this is to say, OK, as long as it's been certified as hemp and then sold into um, uh, an extraction facility, that extraction facility should have to get on a metric like system. That does, you know, a trace that says, okay, from a chain of custody perspective, what are you doing with the byproduct, right? As long as you can say we're destroying the byproduct, then it's a pretty simple uh, issue, and you hold accountable the people that are actually handling it. That say, look, if we're going to take it down to a crude, and then from a crude we're going to do some sort of a uh, an isolation, either through creating um, uh, a you know fully winterized crude initially, and then going into a distillate. From that distillate, we're separating pieces out what's going to happen to those pieces, whether it's D8, whether it's D9, or whether it's any other cannabinoid. But as long as it's a psychoactive cannabinoid, they should have to show destruction of that cannabinoid before it leaves into the market. And that would, you know, essentially that would just cause the states to say, we're going to license the specific uh, extractors, which is a really a finite number of people out there that are doing it, and saying, you know, you guys have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, you're acting in accordance with our regs, and you can show that whatever you extracted out in D8 or D9 has been destroyed. Uh, other than that, destroying the entire CBD industry, you know, typical baby with the bathwater alphabet agency stuff, uh, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. And I think, you know, ultimately we're, we're going to see a change in the law, but we're not going to see what the DEA is suggesting because it just it doesn't make any sense at all. Very good. Yeah, thank you very much for that. That's very educational. That, that is that is educational. It is helpful. And it, it's, it's just such an important issue. And, you know, for me, um, it, 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 it's so very frustrating to see. Uh, the government so heavily focused on trying to disrupt the CBD market. And, and maybe part of it's due to a lack of misunderstanding on its part. Maybe part of it's just due to, to longstanding prejudices that they're just not willing to let go of. Um, but it, it, it almost becomes comical these days. And I'm telling some clients, you know, you're almost better off, uh, you know, trying to sell marijuana than you are CBD the way that yeah. you're cracking down on CBD. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, as I said, it's a complicated question. It's one that um, uh, I, I don't think is, is going away. And I'll tell you that the, the scientists in this space, whether it's you know guys that are doing work with, um, with taking uh, hemp-derived CBD and converting it to THC through an isometric uh, process, or whether it's you know guys in the lab that are trying to create um, yeast-derived uh, cannabinoids, whatever it is, the science is, is far uh, more advanced than the understanding of the bureaucrats. You know, they're, they're light years behind where we are from scientifically. If you try to explain to them the technical aspects of extraction and then how it works, you've lost them the first 30 seconds. But for the rest of you out there listening, I, I wrote a really long white paper on this that's sitting on my LinkedIn uh, profile that's called the DEA got it wrong again. So if any of you want to take a deeper dive on this, you know, it's waste 20 or 30 minutes of your life. You know, go ahead and take a look at that paper and you'll get a pretty good, well-rounded view of, of exactly what the, uh, the the issue is and, and how it's being addressed and ultimately what I think the legal um uh, result will be. Fantastic. And my point would be, doesn't all this go away if marijuana itself is decriminalized or normalized at some point? I and mean, we just saw Mississippi go with a medical marijuana program on this last Tuesday's election. Um, do you see anything on the horizon when the, the new Congress is seated in January? 
no <laughs> simple answer you know like uh it's it, it, unless we have a um you know a, a huge blowout in georgia on january 5th uh and mcconnell loses his seat you know i mean first we have to get through the certification certification process with the uh the presidency which i think you know everyone's expecting will will end up in biden's favor um but after that you know all eyes are on georgia on january 5th and you know, just because uh, Biden won Georgia uh, in the presidential election, you know, it's still a pretty heavy lift to get uh, across the line to unseat Loeffler and Purdue. Um, so, you know, I think smart money is expecting that McConnell's going to sit in the speaker's role or, or you know, Senate majority leader's role. And if he does, you know, do I see any you know major pieces of legislation getting to his desk you know, or even getting out of committee? You know, I think, you know, relatively unlikely. The good news is the Senate map looks much more favorable in 2022. And, the, you know, this might be fleeting. It might be two more years of waiting. Um, but state by state, I mean, Jim, what you just said is spot on. Mississippi just went and didn't go barely. It went two thirds of the vote in Mississippi. Right. So, and not yeah. only that, they chose a more open form of medical. They had two choices, one for just like people who were really, really, truly sick and one that would, you know, more generally just for. And they went with the much more open uh, uh, liberal one. I was really surprised to see that, too. Yeah, that's right. And if you're going to look at a bellwether, if you know, name a more conservative state in the union, you're not going to get one more conservative than Mississippi. So, you know, if, if you're looking at this going, OK, what is you know, let's let's put our finger in the wind and take a pulse here of what's happening. There's no doubt that you put it on the ballot in this country. It's passing at this point. It doesn't matter where it is passing. Yes. So ultimately, does Congress have to look at this and say, you know, we need to we need to start thinking about it? I don't think we're quite there yet. I think that it's going to take New York. Pennsylvania and Florida to go to adult use. And when we do, then I think it's game over. I don't think there's any any further holding back the tide. I agree. We're quite, not quite there yet, but we're close to game over. New Jersey is going to get New York's full attention. Absolutely. There'll be a lot of, I guess, what the um, politicians call leakage with New York <laughs> yeah. and cannabis in New Jersey. And uh, there's a very good possibility that New York could get adult use through the legislature and not through the ballot. Well, I think Cuomo just came out and said that he's looking at, uh, you know, starting the, the process again. I mean, but for COVID, I think we'd already be there in New York. And uh, everyone knew that Murphy was going to pass it in Jersey. And everyone knows that Wolf was going to you know, plan on passing it in Pennsylvania. And by the way, if you look at the lieutenant governor of, uh, of Pennsylvania, that guy's number one issue is, um, is cannabis policy. Uh, in John, I think it's John Fetterman's his name. And Fetterman's terrific. And very likely he's the next governor of Pennsylvania. So it's we're we're not far off on this whole thing because you know you now have people that are in positions of power that aren't just supporting it they're running on it uh, you know Wolf right. ran on it Murphy ran on it right yeah it's real issues no I agree yeah. absolutely and you know I I recognize your comment about McConnell uh, you know being in charge of the of the the flow of legislation in the Senate. But, you know, one of the things that Jim and I always like to talk about and kind of get a chuckle about is, you know, and and you just pointed it out too. I mean, this is the most contentious presidential election in the history of the world. And, and we have Senate seats that haven't even been resolved yet. And and everybody's fighting and screaming and yelling. And meanwhile, cannabis, no issue. I mean, it, it passed by such a wide margin. It's like the one thing in this country that everybody really agrees on. And, and I, I, I continue to, to press it and say, you know, the next time, you know, you're walking down the street and you got the Trumpers on one side and the Biden crazies on the other side, just pull out a joint and let them all get stoned together. And I think within a few minutes, you know, everybody will just be hanging out, having a good old time. <laughs> it is certainly a unifying factor. Uh, there's there's no doubt at this point. And even on a municipal level, you know, you look at 
you look at California where I am, you know, everyone says, oh, California's adult use legal. And my answer is, well, not so fast. It's legal in the state, but every town has the ability to opt in or opt out. Right. But if you look at how many towns, you know, opted in as of this last election, uh, you know, even in San Diego County where I am, we just watched Encinitas and Oceanside go. And, you know, that's that's meaningful. That's going to force all the other towns around. You know, it's going to force my town of Carlsbad to have to rethink it when we're surrounded on either side now by tax revenue that's going to our neighbors. And that's that's how it happens. It's not just on the state level. It's on the municipal level as well. And that's why, you know, for you know, if we're talking elections. I can't stress enough that your local elections make such a huge difference in what your quality of life is and what you're able to do. And they also influence ultimately what the state elections will do. You know, it's, it's not about just the national elections. I highly encourage everyone out there to vote at every election they get a chance to cast their vote and be heard. Well, that's certainly an issue on this election cycle. More people voted, I think, than ever yeah. before. By far. By far. I mean, once all said done, Biden's going to get almost 80 million votes. The record before was what Clinton got in 2016, and that was 65 million. You know, they're going to eclipse it by almost, you know, 20 plus million voters that, that have never voted in a presidential election in a combined vote. It's it's crazy how many people came out to vote. And, and Trump, I think they said, is going to set the record for the most votes received for a candidate who loses the popular vote. It, he'll be number two overall, Larry. He'll, he'll eclipse what uh, Obama got in 2008. You know, so number one and number two will be in this election, the winner and the loser. I mean, Trump is going to end up with, you know, 74, 73, 74 million votes by the time it's all counted. That's, you know, we've never seen no winners ever gotten 73 or 74. It really is amazing that, uh, you know, I suppose that this, you know, if if we need to take a silver lining out of these contentious times is if it really has, you know, uh, um, motivated people to take an interest in politics and to pay attention to what's going on and to get themselves out to the polls. Because as you point out, Rob, once they're standing there in the polling booth, if they get pulled there by the president, that's great. But now there's a whole other list of things for them to pay attention to and to participate in. And, and you know, that that's really the key. So I, you know, I, I think it's great. We get these big turnouts and, you know, hopefully that speaks for as much of a majority of Americans as we can have. I was going to say the best we can hope for right now is that, you know, with a divided government that, you know, people have to come back together. They have to unify a little bit. And hopefully this gets, you know, the country healing a bit. Because right now this is unsustainable as, as we're going forward. And as you know, the Grateful Dead said, this darkness got to give. Amen. Way to c- come to the end of our time slot, <clears throat> which I want to just tell one quick story from Colorado, which, you know, at 11 years now, we've had legal cannabis, adult use since 2014. And a group of us, clients and people in the industry, were having dinner last week, the night after the election. And people are telling their stories of how you know, black and blue and bruised they are and the things they've gone through over the last 10 years, this, the stories they have to tell of partnerships that have failed and leases and landlords and zoning and real estate deals. We all looked at each other and said, you know what, though? We built a $2.2 billion industry from scratch. I mean, it was already there, granted, but a $2.2 billion legal industry in 10 years. And I think that's something all of us here in Colorado can be very proud of. Really, they're in everywhere, you know, and and, it, and, it, and I like to think of it as it's, it's not even so much really building the industry because you're right. I mean, this is the only time in history we're going to have a new industry that already exists. It, it's completely in place. We're just literally flipping the switch and saying you're moving from, you know, you know, the shadows out into the sun and. Yeah, but but the early guys, you know, who got it started definitely set the example for the rest of the country. And, you know, now if only Illinois could just get with the program and finally announce the winners after 10 months, we'd all be really happy. (laughs) 
Well, I think that's the end of our time slot. Rob, thank you. Rob Hunt, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, Larry, great job from Chicago. Thank you. Uh, why don't you sign us off? I will indeed. Uh, first of all, Rob, as always, thanks, man. It's great to have you on the show. It's always great to catch up. Uh, you are the uh, the honored first repeat guest, and at the rate uh, you're going, we'll probably have you back again sometime soon. Um, it's always a pleasure to hear what you have to say. Uh, to all of our listeners, um, hope uh, now that the election is over, regardless of what side you're on, you can uh, catch your breath a little bit, uh, relax, and uh, put on some good Grateful Dead and enjoy your marijuana responsibly. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.